Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 11 of Caro Pop. Carrie Nahabedian is one of Chicago's and the country's top chefs, a trailblazer for women running restaurants and a fantastic talker. Her cooking is elevated while her personality couldn't be more down to earth. She's talented, smart, candid, and funny. It's no wonder that so many people inside and outside the food industry look up to her. Carrie Nahabedian is a James Beard Foundation Award winner, and her restaurant, Naha, received seven consecutive Michelin stars before it closed in 2018. She's currently the chef and co-owner of Brandy, a luxurious Chicago restaurant where she showcases the French techniques she mastered years ago. As with Naha, she co-owns Brandy with her cousin, Michael Nahabedian. Chef Carrie runs the kitchen, Michael oversees the front of the house and the wine program. Together, they're quite a team. They also operate Castali, a Mediterranean restaurant in Chicago's Gwen Hotel. Before opening Naha in 2000, Carrie was executive chef of the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills. She was sous chef and then executive chef at the Four Seasons Hotel Chicago as well. Early in her career, Carrie Nabedin was an apprentice at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Chicago and also worked at two acclaimed French restaurants, Le Perroquet and Jean Bonchet's Le Francais. When she worked with chef Norman Van Aken at Sinclair's in Lake Forest, the two of them mentored a young cook who would go on to have a huge impact in Chicago and beyond, the late Charlie Trotter. He remained a close friend of Chef Carey's. Chicago Mayor Richard M. Daly named September 22, 2009, Carey Nahabedian Day to mark her induction into the Chicago Chef's Hall of Fame. And in 2016, Chef Carey received the Jean Bonchet Lifetime Achievement Award. In our conversation, she talks about what it's like to operate a restaurant right now, the staffing and supply chain issues, and the importance of being consistent no matter the circumstances. You'll learn why she refuses to charge more for New Year's Eve and Valentine's Day, why she hates tented dining in December, and why she thinks so many women are leaving the hospitality industry even as female chefs become more prominent. She has stories to tell about her early days in male-dominated kitchens as well. She also discusses the joys and complications of working with family, and she reveals what an arpita is and the secrets that restaurants keep about guests, and why she prefers bacon on the stovetop to bacon in the oven, and how her lacquered bacon is the best of all. And she describes how she makes her adult grilled cheese. By the end of our conversation, I was very hungry. You should be satiated. Please enjoy this tasty carol pop with Carrie Nahabedian. Carrie, you were my first chef guest, as well as my first non-musical guest. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. How are you doing? You know, so we're, we're like getting at the end of 2021. Uh, you've still got a wonderful restaurant, Brandy, going. You've got uh, Costali by Naha um, in the uh, Hotel Gwen, um, or Gwen Hotel, I forget which it is. I know it sounds so cliche, but it's really true. You have to just take it. You can't think so far ahead. You know, everyone's right now focusing on New Year's Eve and Valentine's Day. It's like, really? Let's just uh, make everybody happy during this holiday season. Everything just falls into place, but it's exhausting. Every, every ounce of work is exhausting. Every ounce of living right now is exhausting because we're just starting to see the, the, um, 
supply chain, or you're not sure if it's supply chain or just another reason why you just don't have something. And uh, so that wears on you, the constant um, worrying about your staff, keeping everyone safe, healthy, happy, mentally engaged. Um, and then, of course, you constantly worry about the guests coming in. Uh, you know, you still have, you still, the threat is still there. We're not out of this yet. Right. Far from it. Yeah, no, I was going to, one of my first questions I'd sort of come up with was to ask you, which is a bigger issue for you right now, staffing or the supply chain? You know, the front of the house, uh, my cousin Michael, uh, we have great, we have great staff at Brundy. Um, would I like two or three more people in the restaurant? Yes, really would love that. But until the new year, I'm just going to, you know, I, I'm, I'm just somewhat tired of, of looking for staff and interviewing and finding the right person and then looking at that person and wondering how many people do they hang around with because you're you're and you're adding somebody into your circle so that's the main concern right now is that everyone at brandy is double vaccinated and for the majority most of them have already started to get most of them have gotten their booster so we can handle this because we're a small restaurant and the staff trust each other. So that is a, a main concern for us. Since the entire pandemic, uh, we were, uh, we've had only one um, staff member um, and we were lucky it was during, during the reopening phase after the riots. And so staff wasn't in contact with everyone like they are now. We're open five days a week. Back then, we were open four days. And so the individual contracted it on like the first day of um, the time off. Um, but, um, you know, People are traveling. We saw our first we saw our first European clients just last week, and they gave us an inside scoop on what life is like in Vienna and in London. Um, but people are traveling, trying to resume some normalcy and and feeling good about it. Um, but the staffing issue it's real, and the hospitality industry in 2022 is going to have to address the fact that why so many people left the industry and it's staggering when you talk to friends years in the restaurant business and in the hotel business how many people just chose i've moved on to something else i'm starting my own business i'm going back to school i left for a different career and then the supply chain issues Yes, it's real, but it's not. It's all tied to labor. You're not going to find the person that is boning out these little beautiful quails for you and packaging them and sending them fresh to you because they're having their own issues. So they're just going to shut down and things like that. And there are also some opportunistic issues with pricing. And yes, it's true. The prices are, are getting in that stratosphere. Uh, but since that's all the news seems to carry, people are somewhat immune to it now. They're used to it. 
um, they're used to hearing that, you know, my, my cousin, Mike, I'll tell you something funny. This is how one person relates to it. It was the first day of tea. So the staff were going to work a, a long hours on uh, Friday. So Michael came in with a big box of bagels from his favorite bagel store. And then a handful of like little, little plastic delis of cream cheese. And he said, there's no veggie cream cheese spread. And we all just looked at him and he said, evidently there's a cream cheese shortage. My favorite veggie spread, I don't have it. And I looked at him and I like, like, that to Michael is the end all. He doesn't care that he can't go you know, to the Apple store and get something for his phone. He doesn't care about that. It's the fact that he can't get his veggie cream cheese spread. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Are there are there crucial ingredients that you have not been able to get? Things are much more on a special order. Things that used to be you just picked up the phone at six o'clock at night or even midnight and um, used to get the next day. Uh, some things are now two weekly times, a weekly time. Um, the biggest thing is in fresh uh, wild game, fresh, different types of small birds, uh, that sort of thing. My venison saddles, which used to be stocked, I now have to order at least a week in advance. So you're constantly having to stay on your toes. Quail, I would say is hard squab. You still have that pigeon on the menu I saw. We have the wild shot wood pigeon, and yes, it's a long lead time, but I've adjusted to that. Um, Dover soles are coming in rapidly now, but it, the price fluctuates every week because of the airlines for the you know the cargo space. Um, and some of the small specialty items, like for our Epicurean gift baskets at the holidays, what I had last year, um, is now not necessarily available, you know, just shortages. So they'll call me up and say, can I sub this for that? That sort of thing. But, um, you know, paper goods, I think I'm on my fourth type of hand towel since May, because, you know, mm. we started out with our luxurious brand we always use in the bathrooms for the guests. And then it's now, you know, every every shipment, it's this is the best that we have. This is the best that we have. So um, I did hear something very interesting at one of the major luxury department stores yesterday that um, I bought a gift and I said, I'd like it in a gift box. And they said, they quoted a very large fee for a gift box. And they said the reason was they couldn't, their supplier couldn't get their gift boxes. And this is a national company. And instead, you know, they said they didn't have shopping bags until mid-November. So I guess in reality, everyone kind of just shut down with the pandemic and they everyone wrote out their inventories. And then when it was time to start the machine back up, it wasn't necessarily easy to start it up. So I think right. that's, that's the supply chain issue 
I'm not talking about the boats, the ships on the shore and all that and the union and the labor to get it off the ship onto that. I don't want to think about that. But there's just <laughs> some things that I don't necessarily want to know how my, you know, shopping bag gets to my front door. I, I just leave that to someone else. Ask me how my Dover soul gets here. Okay, that relates to me. But I think some of it is the fact that um you know, in March 2020, when we just basically turned the machine off, turned the world off, um, some people just chose to say, I'm going to relook at my life. And I, I don't blame them for it because a lot of people, a lot of people have died. A lot of people have been affected. And you, that's why I say you just go day by day. We don't plan too far ahead. We know Valentine's Day is coming, but I don't necessarily need to talk about it right now. <laughs> you know, and, and the staffing issues in the restaurant industry and hospitality really predate March 2020, right? I mean, I, I remember hearing, you know, a lot of totally. you know, talking about like how hard it was to, you know, keep people in the kitchen in the front of the house. Um, so like, what's the overall dynamic there? Like, why is that happening even, even before the pandemic was uh, happening? Well, you have to understand what the serve, how the culture of the service industry is, and it, it's very similar to hospitals, first responders. That okay, it's it's New Year's Day, the 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 hospitals are open, the the hotels are open, restaurant, you know, things just keep happening. We don't shut down at five o'clock. Well, unless you're a breakfast restaurant, we don't shut down at five o'clock. I mean, you, it starts a whole nother day. And I think this is the hardest thing for people to understand that your staff is on. Basically, you're like a, you know, you're like an actor on stage. You're on with the guests. So if you're having a bad day, it's going to show to the guests. So for a long time, Michael has, he still, he still goes along with it. He doesn't like uh, the front of the house staff working more than four days. Um, and not because, I mean, unless they really want to work five days or if they want to work six days, fine. But it keeps them crisp, fresh, happy, engaged with the guests. I mean, you don't, you can now hide whether you have a smile or not because we're still masked indoors. But it's exhausting. Um, our industry is exhausting. It's just one of those things that, you know, like I said, we, we as a industry need to look at the fact that the menus that we write, this isn't an eight hour day. It's a 10 hour day, or is it a 12 hour day? But some people, it isn't a 12 hour day. It's maybe a 12 hour day for me or 14 hours, but for your staff, you have to look at it more as a seven or eight hour day. So you have to, you have to find a mix. You have to make sure everyone's mentally sharp. And I think this issue of labor dates three years, totally three years. Some people will talk that the major shortage of uh, staff happened when like Italy opened because of all the restaurants they had and all of the uh, uh, great um, food items that they brought in and required so many people that it took like it emptied the culinary schools because huh. they needed so many people. So, I mean, I think Italy's probably 
at least four years old. So some people think that that was the, the main attraction, but a lot of it is the fact that um, women have left the industry in droves. Sarah Stegner and I were on a panel with the National Restaurant Association and um, Mary Kay from Illinois Restaurant Association. And I can't quote the figure, but it's a staggering number of, of females that uh, leave culinary school, leave, um, go into the workplace, and within five years, they're all, you know, a large percentage have, are no longer in the industry. And you can take some of that that maybe they met their spouse, they decided to get married, have children, maybe they met their spouse, moved away, decided on something else. But at the end of the day, I know a lot of chefs that have left the industry. I'm talking chefs who have female just chefs. said, female chefs, but also males who decided that I can be a purveyor. I can be, a, you know, there is no greater representation of a company than if you have a salesperson that used to be a chef. They know the product. You don't. You barely don't even have to train them. You don't have to tell them what a wild shot wood pigeon is because they already know it. Now, ask them all the technical aspects of, of you know, getting it to your restaurant and that sort of thing. Um, a company is going to hire a chef because they know the product and they're also working. They don't work nights anymore. Um, they're home. They have a balance. The hardest thing in our industry, whether you're front of the house or back of the house is finding a balance. And we all talk the big game. Like I think everybody's new year's resolution is to find a balance, but it never happens. It, it You start out that way and then you just fall to the wayside because the demands are, are tremendous right now. And yeah, it never seemed like running a restaurant was a way to have uh, balance. No, but, and, and think about all the, the chefs in the city who are married and who have children and then go back and look at all the chefs that have been married and divorced and married again, and maybe they're divorced again, but you can blame some of that on our culture but when i was a young cook starting out i didn't want to be a prep cook i didn't want to work days days lunch what was i going to do at night what stay home watch tv maybe <laughs> go to dinner once a week no you wanted to be where the action is and the action is nights and the action is cooking service. Um, that's the big adrenaline rush. That's the big challenge. That's where you make your name. And you're, there's a lot of individuals that don't want, they can't handle that right now. You have to remember your aunt, you know, service starts at five o'clock. The other day we were at, you know, you're still, you know, you're cleaning the kit after you're done cooking. 11 o'clock at night, you still have like an hour and a half to, um, you know, set yourself up, look at your station, clean it, get yourself organized, decompress, have a cocktail and say, okay, I'm ready to go home. Now I'm not doing myself any favor by saying this on your podcast, but that's the reality. I can't sugarcoat it. I can't tell somebody you're coming in at two o'clock. And by the way, you know, you, you'll be done by 10 o'clock. Some days it's like that, but you're on your feet 
for the entire day other than sitting down for lunch and taking a break or you know, grabbing a, someone grabs a cigarette outside in the alley or something like that. But it, it, it um, you, you have to be passionate about it. You have to love this. You have to really want it. And um, the great servers, the great back waiters, front of the house, the hosts, um, they have that, that gene. They have that straight. They have that passion to they like the rush of it all there's nothing there's nothing more fun than the rush of service this should be a sort of a heyday for women in the you know this industry though in the restaurant industry i mean you have a lot of prominent uh female chefs like sarah stegner who you mentioned who's at prairie grass cafe in northbrook which is one of my favorite places and she's one of my favorite people and a classmate of mine at, from evanston township high school as well uh and a good friend and you know beverly kim at you know wherewithal and parachute and you know chefs at you know vermilion and saigon sisters and a whole bunch of places so the idea that that women are now when there's should be more enlightenment about these things that women are leaving faster than men is, is pretty disappointing. Well, uh, Rohini, um, from Vermilion did something and is continuing to do something spectacular during the pandemic. And she brought together a diverse group of chefs and restaurateurs in Chicago. And you've probably seen it everywhere in the posters. And then the James Beard Foundation got wind of it because Rohini had, has a connection with the Beard Foundation. And um, then the Illinois Restaurant Association, the NRA, and it spread to other cities and it's been a movement. Once a month, we all have a Zoom call. And if you want to be on the LA call, you can. If you want to be on the Cincinnati, we have a Chicago call. Um, and it's, it's women from all different backgrounds. But it's real. When, you, when you're on a Zoom call with 30 women, it's, um, you know, and Rohini does an exceptional job of keeping everybody in, in track. But early on, and even to the beginning of this year, it's highly emotional because you're working so hard, you're trying, you know, some people just said, okay, you know what, I'm just taking a break. And those were highly publicized people that just said, I'm not going to come back. I'm having a baby. I'm not coming back until the pandemic's over. I'm cutting my hours. I'm not going to open my dining room. Every, everyone chose it. You didn't hear, um, and it, it's not because we're weak or anything. It's just the fact that it, each person has their own individual, unique um, situation with their own problems. And it's not a, um, there isn't a, there isn't a pill for everyone to take the problems that each restaurant group has, or each restaurant is unique to that restaurant. And, um, the fact that some people just have decided there's still some restaurants in Chicago that aren't open and, uh, you know, that just for the reason that they're not comfortable, but it is a great time to be a woman chef. Um, I hate categorizing myself. I just happen to be a chef. I'm a, I'm a chef that happens to be a woman, but it's, it's a great time to be in it, but it's also a time that, um, we're lucky that we have a nurturing environment. We have a lot of great people that we can, 
um, call upon for support and um, guidance as we as we navigate this every single day, not just the pandemic, but just the business aspect in general. Yeah, I think of you as one of the best uh, chefs in Chicago and, uh, you know, Brandy uh, as one of the top restaurants and, you know, Naha as it was as well. And I don't think of it as like, oh, there's this is a top female run restaurant. Uh, at the, you know, at the same time, you know, you've been doing this for a while and and you are kind of one of the pioneers in Chicago as among female chefs. And I'm wondering when you started off, you know, how you know, was it, how difficult was it for you as sort of a woman in, you know, a very, at that time, a very male dominated industry and, you know, were you sort of conscious of it or did you just kind of put your head down and do the work? Put my head down to the work. I had tremendous mentors throughout my career who each gave me great advice that I followed to this day. And, uh, you know, if you put your sex in front of you, then you get what you somewhat deserve. You're doing that, you know, like uh, I've said it before that if you want to be that person that says, Oh, I'm a woman, I can't lift this bucket of veal stock. That's the respect that you're going to get from the guy that's working next to you. But if you go to the guy that's working next to you and said, Hey, I have to bring the veal stock from the cooler to the line. Can you help me? can you help me um, bring it to the line? He knows that you're going to carry half of it and he's going to carry half, but 99% of the time, the guy's going to say, let me just get it for you. And that's the truth. But if you go the route of whining and, Oh, I can't do it. That's what's going to happen. That's how they're going to, that's how they're going to perceive you that you're, you know, that you're not serious about it. You're not weak. And, you know, I have the scars to prove it. I've had two, two back surgeries and I'm not, you know, it's not like I'm some machismo, you know, but I, I know my limitations. I am not lifting a, you know, a 20 gallon, uh, container of veal stock that's for sure but will i help someone move it and put it in the icing yes i i will totally do that but i never thought about it my 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 first mentor fernand gutierrez who was also sarah stegner's mentor and susan weaver's mentor who's a chef partner with lettuce you know he just said he taught us to be true to the craft true to the school come in, respect what you're doing, respect the product, um, and everyone around you will fall in place. But I also learned a valuable lesson from him that said, sometimes you just have to step away from the people that you're cooking with. And at, at one point you choose to accelerate and advance yourself. And next thing you know, you know, I, I openly would say it. I was cooking with men. I was in high school and I was cooking at the Ritz Carlton on the dining room line. And, you know, some back then, sometimes the guys were a little flippant about their position or they were the chef de partie or they were the tornado. And if they did something wrong or they took a shortcut and they got caught, I would look right at them and say, you know, do that again. And I'm, 
I'm going to take over your station. You know, like mm. I, you, you constantly wanted to keep moving forward. You know, you didn't just want to be the entremetier doing garnishes and vegetables. You wanted to be the poissonier. You wanted to be the fish cook. You wanted to be the saucier. You wanted to be the tournant. You, you know, you just kept striving. So Fernand taught us that or taught me for sure that, that, uh, that person might make more money than you, but that's all he's going to make. You're, <laughs> you're the sky's the limit for what you're going to do. And, you know, that was his way of saying, you know, you got to earn what you want. And I never put money. Money never came in the equation for me. I still, you know, I cook every single day. I cook a station. I cook on the line, I set my station, I work the, the station the entire day, clean it, restock it, order, chef, do the whole thing. And I have it, I do that because I still have that passion. I've never, I, I don't know if it's because I'm a unique individual or what, but I've never burnt out. And this is a, this is a business that you can feel the effects you can burn out very easily um, from the fact that you work sometimes six nights a week. So our night doesn't mean you come in at five o'clock our night. You know, from the time that you say you're going into work and start to get ready, it's, it's 12 o'clock. So when, when you say, did you just put your head down and work? Yes. You just put your head down and worked and you should gain, you know, it comes through in your cooking. If you love what you're doing, it shows in your cooking. If you're an unhappy person or you're going to take it out on your food, and then that's when you have indifference. And I'm sure everyone can relate to this, that you've been to a restaurant, you read the menu, and you say to yourself, I wonder if it's going to be as good as what is it sounds like, or is the attention to detail going to be there? And I've, uh, I've created monsters within my own family about, you know, from my little cousins and nieces and nephews who now judge grilled cheese by how evenly brown it is on both sides. And <laughs> six old, you know, so I've created that and I love it and I live with that, but, in order to be in this business, whether you're male or female, you do have to put your head down. You have to love what you do and know that we aren't going to the moon. We're not curing, you know, MS or cancer. We're just making a memory for someone. We're creating a great meal. And at some point, everyone breaks away and decides I'm going to cook fine dining. I'm going to cook in a hospital. I'm going to work in a hotel. You're going to, you, you find your own way. You're never going to get somebody who's, you know, suddenly works in a country club to become a chef of a restaurant. That It's a different leap. It's a different trajectory. So our industry is so great because there's something for everyone. starting off, um, I mean, like you've been running your own kitchen now for, for quite a while or kitchens. Uh, but early on when you were starting off, were you subject to behavior? Or did you see behavior that there's no way it would sort of fly today, but back then it was a little more tolerated? 
Totally. Totally. Um, <laughs> you, uh, you see the people, things evolve. I've, I've been interviewed, you know, hundreds of times asking about sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, that sort of thing in, in the kitchen and whatever, what I have experienced. And I can honestly tell you if I did experience it, maybe I was too naive and I didn't even notice it or it didn't it didn't come into play. Like it just, I just rode right over it. Like it was a, you know, a bump in the road. I never experienced it. Did I know women and men who experienced it? Yes, I did. Did it drive them out of the business a little bit, but then they always, you always come back to it. I have to say that the people that I work for, um, they had a lot of respect for the craft. They had a lot of, they had their whole life on the line. You work for a chef that owns a restaurant. You know that every time, every penny they have is tied to that restaurant. So their names on the front door, you have to do, you know, you, you screw up what, you know, you have, you have, the rule of thumb is if a person has a great meal, they tell a few people, a person has a bad meal, they tell everyone they know. So right. this is long before there's Yelp and social media, but the worst, you know, have I seen chefs throw things and you know, the yelling and the screaming it's because I feel the, the passion is so deep in your belly that like when you're, you're just so disappointed when something goes wrong. Like you're just ready to erupt that some, how, how could this have happened? I planned everything perfectly and then something gets in the way. I mean, human error happens or, you know, someone turns their back and next thing something burns in the oven. What you see of that, um, that emotion is just, Oh, you know, like all that work, I got to do it all over again, that sort of thing. So, you know, you have those outbursts and then you, you get past them. The difference is you can't work in a hostile environment. I've worked for very demanding men, but it wasn't a hostile environment. It was, it was a very high level of attention to detail. This is the bar that we set. This is what you have to make it. And just because the reality marks is such a harsh statement, but um, sometimes the best that you can, the best that you, sometimes you have, you hear a chef tell a, a cook, I know you're trying, I know you're doing the best that you can, but the best that you have is not enough for this job. And you have to be able to accept someone telling you that. And not everybody can do it. Not everyone can accept the fact that you have to really, I've given you everything. I've taught you everything. I've shown you everything. I've held your hand. I've, I've stood by your side. And at some point, the cord has to be cut and you have to carry the ball. You have, you have to be the one that makes the touchdown. Like, I can't do it for you every single minute. And, um, and I think that's the hardest part for people to realize is that there's an enormous amount of training and there's an enormous amount of passion in our, in our craft. And um, the things that I saw coming up, I'm sure they're still around, but not so much these days because of the fact that 
it's also so unhealthy. It's it just work is hard enough as it is. Get rid of the stress factor some other way. Yeah, I was gonna say you mentored someone who was known for sort of being that demanding and kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe struggling to find that right balance between pushing and being too hard. Who was Charlie Trotter? Yes. But as as you know from Charlie, everyone who criticized him, who's now a, a you know, noted chef, relate to that now because they're living it. Everything that they right. couldn't stand about him on a daily basis, they've now become that same person because they realize that it's a very rarefied air. And, you know, Charlie would make comments like, you know, it's one thing to have it for a year or two. It's another thing to be 25 years. Keep that in mind. It's one thing, you know, I'll, I'll use an example like the steakhouses, like Gibson's. Everyone uses Gibson's as the benchmark for a steakhouse in Chicago. And then you have all these newcomers coming up, uh, all these big names, and they're making big money and the volume and the price tag and everything. But are they going to be around 25, 30 years like Gibson's is? Uh, is that, is, you know, that's what you have to say to yourself. You, it's, it, um, some people open a restaurant because they want to do it for a couple of years and it's something fun to do. And then other people want to do it because they, it's a generational uh, passage. It's uh, it's a sustainable industry that they're going to pass on to their kids and then their kids get into the business. And next thing you know, it's a hundred year restaurant. So was it, what do you think is the key to that longevity, which obviously you've had in the industry as well? Is it, is it sort of maintaining a level of passion um, or is it something else? Well, I would say like my cousin Michael will always say, and, and when we, at the end of the night, we always have like 20 minutes, half hour to ourselves, whether we're closing up at the end of the night, um, you know, waiting for someone to finish up or driving home. It's all, you can only be as good as your, as your staff that you surround yourself with. And I might be a great chef, but I can't do it all alone. I can maybe prep alone, but you can't one service start. you need everyone. So everyone has to buy into whatever it is that you're going to stand for. And in the case of these restaurants, uh, you know, I, I wish, I wish I had an answer for every single person that was like, I miss Naha so much. I miss Naha so much. And then when you look at them and say, you know, we were 18 years. I mean, that's a long time, 18 years. And right. if you think of, if you think of that corner, it was two restaurants for 50 years. I mean, I think that's an unbelievable run at one corner of the city that you had, you know, one restaurant for 32 years and you had another restaurant for 18 years. And um, I think it's because the staff, it's the philosophy, what you've taught them, you've created a great environment. Number one, everybody has to like, there's a, there's a reason why a person walks into a door of a business, whether it's a restaurant, a store, any type and ask for a job or applies for a job because they admire what they're doing or they heard about it or a friend work there or, you know, goes on and on. And um, they already know what the philosophy is. You don't have to 
tell someone that's applying at a three-star Michelin at a linea what the culture is. They already know what the culture is. You, be- you better know everything about the restaurant before you walk in the door. And it always helps if you've dined in the restaurant too, so that you can experience it. But the key to longevity is never losing your passion, um, enjoying it every single day, having some form of balance that works for you that works for you there's it's not cookie cutter and then surround and and in no particular order and surround yourself with people that you love that you like that you want to be around the entire day too so you have to create a fun atmosphere too it can't all be rules and regulations and someone's always going to break a rule and you just got to go with the flow you just you just have to go with the flow and it sounds so, so cliche, but it's true that, you know, um, you have to let people be people. You, we're, we're not a corporate environment. Not every restaurant um, is a on the stock market exchange and is publicly traded and has a set of corporate rules that have to be followed. Like so many times you go somewhere and and you ask for something, well, that's not our policy. Really? You know, at Naha for 18 years, we had two policies. There was, you couldn't have the lunch menu at dinner and you couldn't have the dinner menu at lunch. But even sometimes we broke that because, you know, somebody would come in and say, I'm only here for the day and I really want this dish. So I don't like, no, I, I feel that unless you're asking me to flame cherries Jubilee in the dining room and make steak Diane at your table, which I don't have (laughs) the capability, that's the only time you should say no, it shouldn't be, you have to always find a way. And, um, I think that that's what keeps longevity. That's what keeps the iconic restaurants not only in the United States, but in the world, you know, like, look, I was watching, you know, uh, a few minutes of a Hallmark movie the other night. It took place in Vienna and they have the hotel soccer. The hotel soccer has been around for, you know, eons and all they're known for is their chocolate cake. No one knows that it's an unbelievable hotel, but everyone goes there for the chocolate cake. Do the they soccer tour, right? The soccer tour. Do they change the soccer tour? No. It's the signature. It's the way it looks. People expect it to be exactly like they've seen it in every travel magazine, every food magazine, every publication. So when they get there, they want the wooden box. They want the beautiful robe cake, the big seal on the top, the schlag on the side. They want it all. And you have to give it to them. So therein lies the next thing, which is consistency. You got to have consistency. If you don't have it, if if you become a hit or miss restaurant or, uh, you know, there's a restaurant in the city right now that's really struggling with, with that because of the turnover and because it's so beloved, everyone's kind of feeling sympathetic to it because you're saying to yourself, it's a real challenge what they're going through, and they're working their way out of it. In fact, they're out of it. People, only people in the industry necessarily know some of these things. But consistency, making sure the guest gets what they want. Um, on a separate note about the pandemic, everyone is 
for the most part, is sympathetic to what our industry as a whole went through. You have to remember how many people um, were affected by uh, illness, deaths, restaurants across the country lost a lot of people. And, um, but then again, every once in a while you get someone that says, Oh, is really, is that still a struggle? And you, you're, you're happy you know, you have a mask on because you're just like, really, you know, like, right. so I would say that that's the key to longevity is that it's a combination of great people, great leaders. No one gets stagnant. You, th this business, you can't get stagnant. You can't, um, you can't just go with, we've always done it this way. It just won't fly. It seems like so many great chefs, maybe any chef, there's, it's sort of a combination of your family and sort of what you grew up you know, cooking and, and how you experience food and then training, you know, whether it's, you know, in culinary school or in other restaurants. Um, and with you, those two things seem very prominent in that you work, you've been working with your cousin, Michael, who runs the, the front of the house and, and a lot of other aspects. And then, you know, every time I would go into, you know, Naha or Brandy, I'd see sisters and, and, uh, you know, members of your family. So like, what's the balance between sort of the family and the training with you? The balance is, is that no no one in the family has ever worked in the kitchen. And that's the God's honest truth. I don't know if it's because <laughs> of me or they just see it as I'm not talented enough or it's not their passion. They'll come in the kitchen. They'll hang out in the kitchen. They'll eat in the kitchen. They'll voice their opinions. Um, they're always with Craig, our pastry chef. And uh, you know, Craig is, is part of our family. He's been with us. Um, you know, almost 15, I think 15 years now. And uh, so, you know, my sister will still leave Craig a recipe on his, on his marble counter that, hey, I saw this in a magazine. Will you make it for me? And I'll be like, what are you doing? We have enough work to do. And well, I want some chocolate pudding, you know, and it's, it's kind of <laughs> funny, but you know, everybody looks at it differently. Like my sister does the finances. My oldest sister, um, you know, for the longest time, for the entire time at Naha, she trained the host. She answered the phone. She did gift certificates. She was the office manager. You know, all these things happened because I could only do what I did. And Michael could only do what he was going to do because we had two people from our family that we could trust to say, uh, you know, I, I can't do this. And then, of course, it's exceptional to have my cousin Tom, Mike's younger brother, as your architect, as the man that anything we possibly need design-wise or fixing or anything, as my cousin Tom will say, you know, I'm the architect. I designed and built the restaurant. It doesn't mean I have to maintain it. You know, you guys have to figure this out yourself. We die laughing, but... Only your family can relate to you. Oh, a lot of our cousins have been coat check. Um, my nephew was a manager for a really long time, and he even helped us with the transition at Brandy. And now he has his own career in food and beverage. He was in L.A. Now he's in New York, and he's with sports and entertainment. So once 
once the food industry bites you, it's hard um, to get away from it because it, it's such, I mean, the day just flies by. I'll never forget my sister, Kathy, coming to me and going, when I worked at the bank, oh my God, the day just dragged on and on and on because she was a, in mortgage. She was here, I, I turn, you know, I come in, everyone's getting ready for lunch. Then it's lunch. Lunch is over. Then everyone's getting ready for dinner. There's family meal. And next, you know, it's five o'clock. And I go, yeah. And you go home and we're here for another eight hours. And she <laughs> starts laughing. But, um, I think it's fun to have your family around because your family keeps you real. Uh, my sister has no qualms about, uh, She'll never say something about food or something. She'll say things like, um, I need a receipt for that or else you're not getting paid. You know, like I'll go to the, I'll go to the store and buy you know soy milk or something, and I took ten dollars from the the safe, and she'll say either you give me the ten dollars or you give me a receipt. And so she keeps you real, like you're buried, and all she's worrying about is the ten dollars for the soy milk. You know that that's and and you have to respect that because um, it 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 makes the day go a lot faster. Uh, when you have people that you love and support and they support you, um, Michael, uh, Michael and I have a great dynamic, a very interesting one. And, um, his father and my father were brothers and, um, my dad was like 13 years older. Um, and Michael and I are very similar in age. I'm older by, I don't know, I think like seven years. But um, the thing is, is that he can't, he can come in the kitchen and he can be, he can boost everybody up and get everybody. Uh, he's the most positive individual you're ever going to meet. Michael is never a half empty guy. It's, you know, don't, don't look for greener grass. The grass is green right here. Look at everything that we got. Look what we're doing. He can walk in the kitchen and light it up in a second in the worst of times. And, you know, in the middle of a crunch when, sorry, sorry, we sat down all at once, but there's, you know, it's, it's pouring rain outside and everybody came late. So he'll come in and just say, listen, if you guys can get through the next 25 minutes, I promise you it'll be very easy. So that's how Michael is. He'll come in, he motivates everyone. Um, he'll, he'll take pictures of the food. He'll come and hang out. He will never be obtrusive. He'll never go behind the line and say, Hey, let me base that, you know, pheasant for you or something like that. That's not going <laughs> to happen. And he'll come to me and he'll say, I know you're working really hard and I, I, I just, I can't, I, this isn't my thing. You know, he doesn't know how to cook. It's the same thing with me. You want me to come in the dining room. I have no problem greeting the guests and I can talk to someone forever. If, if someone needed to while they're waiting for their table, <clears throat> but to this day, I don't know a table number. I don't have room in my brain to remember. I, I have a select number of tables that I choose to remember, but 18 years at Naha, we had two round booths, 50 and 51. And if you ask me today, which table was 50 and which was 51, 
I wouldn't know. And because you know why? I don't have, I didn't have to know because there was so many of Michael's team that if I walked in the dining room and they said, you got to go to table 30, you got to go to table 51. I'll give them this look like you, you might as well have asked me the, you know, history of evolution. You know, I'd be like staring off in space and then they'd walk <laughs> me over there. So I, what works for Michael and I is the fact that he excels so well at what he does and I do the same. Um, we have a dividing line of all the other things. And at some, at, at some point, sometimes he does something that I don't want to do, or sometimes I do things that he doesn't want to do. But at the end of the day, we're all on the same page. And that is uh, to keep the restaurant important, viable, keep the money coming in, keep all the staff employed, keep everyone happy. That's all, you know, like I don't worry about how many covers we do or anything like that. I worry about everything that I can control. So the other aspect of family, um, is how much of the food that you you make now and, and obviously brandy is more french oriented than the naha was but how much of that food would you say is kind of comes from your training and how much comes from the food you ate and experienced growing up well right now during the holidays you're you're seeing some things that you know you don't necessarily see during the rest of the year um because Especially in pastry, because I will um, I will go to Craig and say there's certain things that I need to see at the holidays because I remember them in my youth. I have to have my mother's cream cheese chocolate chip cookies in the holiday tins, or he'll make them more refined with the candied orange peel and everything. And it might be the cookie that goes with your coffee at the end of the meal or with your espresso or that sort of thing. And then I have to... Um, Judy Shad, the uh, cheese, unbelievable cheese maker from Capital Farms, saw, you know, I answered a question on Facebook, like, what's your favorite cookie? And I wrote Cherry Wonders. Well, this is a cookie that no one really knows where my mother got this recipe. Somewhere she contends she probably saw it in the Tribune in like the 19, 1960 or something. <laughs> and so I'll go to Craig and I'll say, I have to have Cherry Wonders. It's like my favorite cookie of all time. And you read the recipe and there's nothing to it, but the simplest things are the easiest. So at the holidays, you see little things like that floating in. Of course, our mother's feta cheese turnovers, which is a favorite from Naha. It was a huge seller on our takeaway menu. It's still available. You can buy them by the dozen or the piece. It goes on our Greek salad. It's the actual recipe that my mother and Michael's mother, my Aunt Pauline, Pauline is Greek. My mother's Armenian. They meet in the middle, and they're known for the cheese bought eggs, the tropetas. And you're going to, you know, like when I show the cooks how to make them and roll the triangles, it's like rolling, you know, like when you were in school and you had a love triangle or you threw your friend a note and you folded it up like a triangle. The cooks will look at me and go, you're so fast. And I go, oh, my God, I've been making these since I was like seven years old. What are you kidding me? I could... <laughs> I could bang out a thousand before you even knew it. So right now you're seeing those sort of things, but um, and now how you saw a little bit more and at Costali you see a lot because of the 
Middle Eastern Mediterranean influences there. But, you know, everything is up for my own interpretation that uh, certainly winter menus right now, I had a very strict rule my entire career. And this year I decided to throw that rule out because I always said I would never do venison. I never did venison until the first real snow. I'm not talking like a little flurry. I'm talking about snow. And I just kept waiting. I, I wanted to teach the cooks the whole venison preparation from, and I have an extern from Paris in the kitchen who is from Ecole Alain Ducasse. And uh, I want for him to see certain things before he goes back to Paris. And I just decided, you know, I don't know, a month ago, I'm going to bring in a saddle of venison. And at some point it's got to snow, right? It's got to snow. It's Thanksgiving. It's got to snow. Well, it didn't snow. And I just decided I was going to put it on the menu because no better time than to break the mold than during the pandemic that, you know what? I'm just going to put venison on the menu. And it's been insane. Like I can barely keep up with, um, teaching it, the preparation, people are so excited because it's not a dish that you see. A venison grand veneur is one of the greatest specialties from Jean Bonchet, from Le Francais. I mean, the fact that the procedure on how to make the stock to the sauce, the marinade, the double marinades, the reductions, how you make the veneur, how you finish the sauce, the chestnuts, the whole dish... It's just like love on a plate. It was, it's winter. <laughs> Every aspect has so much detail. And you can't get to that end result until you, you're doing, you know, the four days of prep prior to it. So I broke the mold during the pandemic and decided um, that we're going to do venison, even though there's no snow on the ground. So little nobody, would, like nobody would object to that, though, right? Like nobody's going to no guest no is going to walk knows. in going, wait a minute. Do you, don't you have a rule about no <laughs> snow on the ground before you serve venison? Like that's your own Michigan. That's right? my own thing. But people who know, people who know me know I have some of these kind of quirky things that I I have this running list of my top 10 pet peeves that change all the time but people who know, me know that, that Carrie never puts venison on the menu so when Michael see you know I do the menu change I hand it to him he types it all up it gets sent away it gets printed he formats it and he looks at me and went, venison? Are we supposed to, is it going to snow? Is it going to snow? <laughs> and I go, you know what? He goes, it's supposed to be like 70 degrees. I go, I don't care. And I mean, I the, the venison's only been on the menu just, I think, right around Thanksgiving. But it's just the whole idea that that's part of me, that I'm doing my part in honor of my mentors, I'm passing it on to Christopher, who's the saucier now, and say, I'm showing you this. Write it down. Don't write it down. But this is how I do it. This is how I was shown. Yes, there's variations, but the, you know, if you go somewhere else and, you, and they tell you to make it differently, you can, you do whatever you want. But just so you know that this is the French classical way. So, yes, I bring in, 
you know, I, I bring in my experience every single day at work. Right. It's just what I do. It's, um, the, every day I have a little bit of Jovan Trebojevic, who was my other mentor from Le Perroquet, who was about the style and the aspect and treating the guests and just that whole experience. So you had Fernand, you had Jovan, you had Bonche. And then if you move into like the more management styles of, of the great general managers that I worked for with Four Seasons that, and the, the great directors of finance, because so many chefs know how to cook, but so many chefs don't know how to, how to take a dollar and maybe, you know, save a few pennies from that because it, it's a right. very, very, very tough business in that respect. So you bring your experience every single day. We talked a few years ago about some of the terms that you have uh, for, you know, in, in, in your notes or whatever <laughs> about some customers. And one of them was, uh, you talk about PITAs and the RPITA, uh, which I think you'd learned from Charlie, which was uh, Charlie Trotter, which was the royal pain in the ass, as opposed to a PITA, <laughs> PITA who's just a, a pain in the ass. And I'm wondering over the last year and a half, if you've, if you've encountered more PITAs, if there's a different kind of PITA-ness going on lately? Well, I'll tell you. When when Charlie first called us that time, there was a there was a problem at the restaurant. I, it was many many long long time ago, and I, I think they had a a pipe a fire. I don't know what it was. And he said, "And yeah, put in the notes. It's a repeater." And I go, "What? They're a return guest? Was it a repeater?" And he goes, "A repeater, a royal pain in the ass." And I'm like, "Oh great! So you're <laughs> telling me this person?" He goes, "I'm just preparing you that." Just so you know. So that became, you know, I, I hate to say it, but every single restaurant keeps a, I mean, we don't keep physical paper, but it's in the computer. Your notes are in it. If Mark Caro comes in, <laughs> Mark Caro always has to have his back to the wall then you're, that's in your notes. So that doesn't matter how many hosts, how many servers, how many managers leave. Once they hit Mark Carroll's thing, it'll say, Mark likes to sit with his back to the wall. So you will never sit in an open chair. You'll always be in a banquette. I mean, we have that notes on everyone. I mean, I mean, anyone who says something in the hotel industry, it's even better because it's incredible how people live their lives in their homes so nicely. And then they go to a hotel and suddenly they have to have, you know, there's turn down slippers on the right side of the bed because God forbid it's on the left side. But these are things that happen seamlessly and this is and i can't stress enough that this is what makes our industry so great is that it's all about creating the experience it's all about the memory it's all about a great lunch a dinner a wedding a party and um so having notes on people it's really important because they don't have to tell you I don't drink ice in my glass. I just want cold water or I have to have lemons by the side because that gets old really, really fast. So, you know, all of a sudden you can now type in, you know, under guest notes, you can put repita and you don't have to explain what it is. Everyone knows now what a repita is, but also the concierges at hotels will call you up and they'll tell you something like, 
you know, it, invariably it'd be a Friday and they're looking for a four top on a Saturday at, of course, 730. And, and, you know, sometimes you can move the room. Some, you know, like I'm not a master of it. Michael will say, I don't ever want you answering the phone for this very reason, because someone tells me a sob story and I just figure, I just put him in the book and let Michael figure out how he's going to find his table for him. Right. Um, but in some aspects, you look at, the, you say to the concierge, listen, you know, you know, you can only have a table if there's a table to be given, you know, like, um, so you'll say to them, how are these people? Are these people cool? And they're like, yeah, they're really cool. Don't worry about them. They can sit at the bar and have a drink, or, you know, for 15 minutes. Or if, if they come in late, it's okay. They'll figure it out. But if they say to me, um, they're really hardcore guests, they're very demanding, we'll say no right out of the gate. If we have to squeeze somebody in and know that maybe that person isn't a type of person that you can squeeze in, you're going to put that in the notes. And yes, the squeaky wheel always gets the oil, but that doesn't mean um, another guest isn't getting the same experience. It's just that we've come to realize that certain individuals need more attention or less attention. There's just as many people that just want to come in, uh, you know, here's my credit card in advance. They'll call up. I don't want a bill presented at the table. I don't want anything. Take a picture of it. Here's my email. Here's my personal assistant. Send it to them because they don't want any disturbance. They want to come in, have a great meal or have a business meeting. And so, not everything is a negative. You have individuals that don't make reservations and they just show up. And then the minute someone walks in the door that has a, that we know has special requirements, Michael will walk right in the kitchen and go, so-and-so's here. And then we know immediately that we got to go downstairs and bring up a specific cheese and, and start it ripening on the off chance that 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 the his that the table will order this cheese in in la the four seasons la we as soon as a guest a specific guest would come in that was known to be very demanding as soon as a guest would walk in they would say to the chef whoever was there myself the sous chef chef de cuisine whatever um so mr so-and-so's here and they'd immediately turn on, they'd immediately plug in the waffle machine and go to the go to the pastry cooler to the breakfast area and make sure there was waffle batter because if he couldn't get a waffle at seven o'clock on a Friday night, you know, his life was, you know, like that, that would just ruin his whole stay. So you, you get used to people like that. You get used to people who want a specific table. We had a guest not too long ago that something happened to us that never happened before. And, um, but we're very discreet and we, you know, a uh, person was kind of showboating for the guest they were with that clearly was not their significant other. And it, it, you, you just, you just make it all happen. You know, you just try to make it happy. You just say, to your, Michael will sometimes come in and go, all right, where's the, 
where are we at at table 21? And you'll go, well, they just ordered. Okay, I want a push on that entire table. Meaning, as soon as possible, I want the first course to go out. As soon as the first course goes out, I want the next course fired and so on and so forth because I don't like their vibe. Sometimes mm. as a person comes in and they're just in a bad mood or the husband and wife are fighting or the man's had a bad day, you have no idea, but the vibe can just turn the room. The way they talk to the server, the way that they respond to the back waiter, the way they react to the food runner, the host, anything can change the mood of the dining room immediately. And so Michael can read, Michael's exceptional at reading a table. Like, it's scary. It's very, I mean, there should be it's a, a superpower. It's a superpower. He can, he can look at it table and he'll go i want them gone I, they need to go <laughs> whatever's happening in their life they need to handle it outside the restaurant or someone who lingers and you need the table but we have a thing that we don't ever even during the pandemic and, and it's not like we're angels with halos or anything like that but michael and i are it's michael and i it's Michael and I, it's Michael and Craig and I, it's Michael, Craig and I, and my sister, Kathy. It's the four of us. And then there is the front of the house staff and then there's the back of the house staff. But the front line is Michael and I, Craig and Kathy. So the four of us, and Kathy's never there to in service and she does finance and she gives us moral support by making us laugh all day long. And, you know, Craig and I and Michael, we speak the same language. So um, Michael can read a room and we have a, a thing that we don't, even during the pandemic where all these people will be like, you, um, you have one and I'm whispering because it's so annoying. I can't even stand it. Um, you can have this table for an hour and a half and then you're going to have to leave or you have this table for 45 minutes and then the next person's coming in. It's like, really? It's why are you putting it on me? It's up to you to make sure I'm out an hour and a half. It's up to you to make sure I have my food in 45 minutes. It's up to you to have the service. It's up to you to have the kitchen. I have no control. All I'm doing is coming in and sitting down. And my only responsibility at this point is ordering and paying. That's it. You know, like, but then you have those guests that come in and they stay and they stay and they stay, right. but they're not necessarily ordering anymore or doing anything. We've created an environment at, at Brandy and at Naha, but really at Brandy where it's so comfortable and luxurious and just so relaxing that people want to stay forever. And sometimes you can do that. And other times, all of a sudden, you know, you hear Michael, this is the dish that you're going to hear from restaurants across the country. You'll tell the back waiter, I want everything off that table. Don't go to that table and fill the water glasses anymore. Once they're <laughs> done with the, once they finish the water, they, you refill them four times since they paid the bill. So remove the water glasses, crumb the table, and don't go near it again. In other words, you're going to kind of like freeze them out. You've already paid the bill. You've had your Mignardis, coffee, everything's cleared. And you're somewhat looking at them to say, 
hey, it's okay if you want to stay, but maybe we have to move you. Come over to the bar and, you know, seating at the bar at Brandy is hot, hot demand. I mean, people call up and say, you know, is there a seat at the bar because I'm coming in for dinner? I mean, there's only eight, between seven and nine seats, depending upon the day of the week, depending upon the size of the individuals that are eating at the bar. And they have to leave. But other times there's people that come in for holiday tea. They come in at 1.30 and it's not unusual that they're still there at 5.30 because they're having such a lovely time and it's the holidays. You can have a couple tables like that, but you can't have a whole dining room like that. Else, you know, we won't be able to open. But the reality is, is that no matter what, every person who makes a reservation at some point has something added to their reservation <laughs> will you ask these lingerers <laughs> to leave or will you say you know like what if there's no place at the bar for them to sit will you actually say hey we're sorry we need this table there are people standing there or will you be like no we can't do that well if you've removed everything from the table and all they have is basically their napkin unless <laughs> unless the napkin unless they took their napkin off and got up and went to the restroom and there was no reason for the server to refold the napkin or bring a fresh one. Uh, they've removed that napkin. There's nothing there for them. So at some point they're going to want a glass of wine and everything. And they'll go to the server and they'll say something like, Oh, we've closed the check, but we'll be happy to move you to the bar. Oh, there's not a seat at the bar, but why don't you get up? We'll see what we can do. And that's how you move it along. Um, but like I said, Michael's the Jedi master of making sure that that happens. But we don't do seatings. We we also don't do we don't book ourselves into such a corner that you're you don't you don't want to be a Fellini movie where the waiters, are, the you know, the servers, waiters, everybody's sweating and they're running around with their heads chopped off and they're creating an environment where you're actually stressed just watching the server kind of thing. So um, we never, we never booked to the hilt that way, especially now we, we still follow our own rules of, let's 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 not pack the dining room if we don't have to because we still you know we still have to keep everybody safe and just because the government doesn't say we need the six feet um there's times when you when you feel like you need it the other day we had some guests that were lingering and i went out i started to you know, it was in between service and I thought tea was over and I just walked into the dining room and I was starting to talk about, you know, a menu change or something, a substitution. And I realized there was a table in the dining room. So Michael's like, oh, there's a table in the dining room. I'm like, what do you mean there's a table in the dining room? It's, you know, it's 4.45. But he recognized that it's pouring rain outside. So maybe they're just waiting for it to let up. We're just going to be cool about it. We don't need that table till six o'clock. I purposely, just in case, I'm not seating that table till six o'clock. So he, like I said, he is a genius <laughs> Jedi at looking at how, um, how to keep a person happy, how to get a person out of the room, but never, never will Michael 
say to a guest, you have an hour and a half to eat. Just would never happen. Right. It's um, he doesn't believe in it. He doesn't buy into it. Even during the pandemic, when we were seating outside and it was, there was no indoor dining. It was summertime. We had a limited amount of tables outside. He refused to buy into, and I can't stress it enough. He absolutely, he was adamant. We are not taking a deposit. We are not charging people to sit outside. We are not pre-booking and taking their credit cards. We're not putting an automatic gratuity. We are doing what we do normally, which is servicing the guests. It's all about the guests. So let all these other restaurants have all their rules because it's harder to enforce those rules. So if a person wants to come in and eat and they're going to sit outside, it's up to us to figure out how long is this person going to stay? Don't overbook it. Let the people enjoy it. Life is so hard. The last thing you want mm. in the entertainment side is to have someone say, oh, Mr. Carroll, you have 45 minutes to eat outside. Sometimes it takes you 45 minutes to just get yourself situated, have a cocktail, look at the list, and just take in the beauty of the city. And, and next thing you know, you have someone coming to you, oh, you know, I need that table in 15 minutes. Well, that's so not cool. And that goes against every grain of hospitality. That's everything that all of us have ever learned, which is it's all about the guest experience. Now, if Charlie was alive and Charlie was here, he would say, sometimes the guest isn't always right. Sometimes you have to divorce the guest. And yes, it was well known that there were some people that he didn't allow into the restaurant, but it's up to you to figure it out. Just like, I don't want to know how, how my shopping bag gets from, you know, gets from the ship to a, you know, a truck and on a plane. I don't want to know that. I just want to order my shopping bag and it comes, you know, like I don't need to know that. Right. It's the same thing with the guests. The guest makes the reservation. Their sole responsibility is to show up. And I can't stress that enough that if you're not going to show up or your plane's delayed or any, any excuse right now, any excuse gets you out of, out. We have people saying, you know, Oh, I don't feel well. Or my guest doesn't feel well. And you know, we don't know what it is. I don't care what it is. As long as you tell me, as long as you call up and say, I'm not going to be there. Then we modify the book and that's the end of it. The reservation is gone. We're not charging you. We aren't, everyone is getting a pass right now. It's the dog ate my homework because I'm trusting someone when they say it's bad karma to lie. It's bad karma to say my husband doesn't feel well. And I don't think it's right if we come in. It's, it, maybe he just came home from work and he doesn't want to go out for dinner. But all you got to do is just say our plans have changed. And I'm so sorry. And we will be joining you soon. Sincerity goes a long way. And that's all the guests, all their responsibility is, is to come in, honor their reservation, enjoy their evening, pay for their experience. And that's it. They don't want to know anything else. They don't want right. to know that 
the you know the the back waiter you know train was late and that's why they don't have their water no they don't want to know anything like that they just want to come in everything else is up to you so all of these constraints that came and i'm getting very passionate about it because michael and i I would come to him and say, hey, did you hear what so-and-so is doing? They're doing this, this, and that. And he'd go, no. And I'll look at him, i go, what? He goes, no, Why? we are not changing who we are. Do we ever add on gratuity to two diners eating in the restaurant? The only time we add on service fee is X over X amount of people. We don't do that. We don't do this. We don't do that because... It's the same reason why we don't jack our prices on New Year's Eve or Valentine's Day because you don't whore out your restaurant for two days two days of the year. You cater to your guests. We have the same conversation every New Year's Eve. You're probably the, the minority on that, I would bet. We are the minority on it, and I like uh, Michael will say people spend more, relax more, enjoy the holiday more if they order what they want on new year's eve instead of creating this you know unless you're a set menu degustation only type restaurant all the time like set you you have a set menu like alinea or smith or oriel or or ever this is that is who you are you don't change that there's something not going to become a la carte now that they've been doing tasting menu, set menu, and without a little bit of deviation, say for vegetarians and vegans and things like that. But like, I suddenly, if somebody wants to taste the menu, I'll gladly do it. But we are not known for being a restaurant that everyone has a tasting menu that walks in the door. So he will never change that for New Year's Eve or Valentine's Day or any other holiday because he feels um, very strongly, and there's great evidence to back them up that people appreciate it that they can come in and order what they want, and they tend to spend more freely and more relaxed when someone tells them that they can just come in and have a Dover Soul split a steak and have a dessert than to eat, you know, a, a multitude of courses that isn't their style or it isn't their thing. And I'm just talking about what works for us. Michael feels that you, you have to cater. You can't confuse your clients. So if you're open on, on a Sunday, because it's a holiday, that's one thing, but you can't confuse your guests and just decide, Oh, it's going to be busy. We're going to open on Sunday because you can't just do that without turning the machine on and sending out the social media, the newsletters, calling the concierge is changing your website. And then people are confused and then they come the next week and you're closed. So you're seeing a lot of that because of the pandemic, right. because uh, you're seeing more and more restaurants having to close because they don't have the staff, they have the signs up, that sort of thing. And, Michael's, we, we saw it advertised on a menu the other day that this restaurant was hiring. We saw it on a truck for a, a local uh, florist had on his truck. And Michael's like, people come to a restaurant, not just ours, but they come to a restaurant to be entertained, amused, 
to leave reality and, and just enjoy life, whatever, whatever we're giving to them. And they don't, they don't want to be lectured to, they don't want to read on a menu that you're hiring. Right. Because they immediately imply that, oh, we're going to have a shortage of, of experiences. I mean, we might talk about it or something like that, but again, it's not like we're some rock star superstars. We just are very passionate about what we do. We come in every single day and uh, Castali, you know, happens to be right now in the number one hotel in Chicago by the Reader's Choice poll, which, you know, that that was a, a really uh, pleasant uh, announcement in the midst of some really bad times that we're going through. And the Gwen has found a way to be a luxury hotel in this environment without being intimidating and um, they have found their niche of individuals and people that are the hotel is is thriving. It's vibrant. It's fun to go to. And it's the same thing that they're hiring people that have that same philosophy. And it, it's uh, it's people go to hotels, restaurants, bars, because they want an experience. It's like being on. So implying that you have all these rules or talking about shortages or talking endlessly about pandemic people, we we've all heard it. We live it every single day and we just want a nice escape. All we ask you is that you walk in with a mask and you sit down and you be respectful. And after that, it's, it's, it's up to us to make sure you have a great time. Do you still have visions of opening another restaurant or is this it? As a, a as a, a large handful of my friends that I grew up with are now all retired and they're looking at me like, we're retired and you're thinking of keep keep going. And it's like people in our industry really never retire. You know, I don't I don't I don't think that's a possibility. We have it's like an architect or or a, an artist. You just you just keep creating. It's not that hard. Um, it's hard to turn it off, as we all know from people who have left the business. It's 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 such a big buzz all day long. I mean, sure, we all like to have two weeks off and we decompress and we feel tremendous, but um, most definitely. Our family has been in Southwest Florida and Naples and Marco Island since we were little kids. And, you know, my father took us there when it was a jungle and we all fell in love. And that's um, where the family, our families live. Um, some live there full time and some live half the year and some go as much as possible. But most definitely, um we have always set our sights to do something really fun, do something very different, bring a little bit of Chicago to Naples and Mark Island. So that, that most definitely is there. Um, we love our relationship with uh, the Gwen and the preferred hotels and, um, and possibly, you know, looking to expand from from that aspect. Being being in a hotel, I've always my dream is to have a restaurant on the water in in a hotel. 
I'm not saying I want it in a hotel on Lake Michigan, but I would love it in um, a very warm or European style setting. So mm. I, I still have I still have a one or two restaurants inside of me. My biggest problem is that I. I'm obsessive and that is a, you know, it's a good, you know, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a curse. It's a good thing. It's a bad thing. And I, um, it's, I, right now you're hearing from a lot of people that you just have to turn a blind eye because of the labor shortages, because of people's feelings towards the pandemic and uh, how, how you have to react to people you come in contact with every single day about um, their mental health, the mental well-being, keeping everybody safe. Suicides are up. You, we all read the same newspaper, but um, I feel that um, I, I feel that I have more to say, and I feel that I um, would like to like I, I would like to find the right people i would like to find the right situation that would lead us to doing a great restaurant on the water tropical greece mm. somewhere like that anywhere because you're you're building something that's so beautiful that people come to and they're immediately relaxed i read somewhere once that um people people's stress level goes down dramatically when they hear the sound of waves because they they revert immediately to vacation. And Costali is exactly that, except we're not on the water. So my cousin Tom brought the design of of Greece and the coastal Mediterranean, and all that was left to the imagination is the fact that you're not sitting outside and you're not on the water. So for our part, it's all about creating um, the experience and making people uh, remember something that keeps you coming back to. We all we all have our favorites. So yes to all that. Yes, yes, to, yes to everything. Laura Foster, the artist, would say yes to all that kind of thing. Just as long as you don't move from Chicago. No, I mean, <laughs> I. It is a very dangerous time to be in the city. I'm. I you know I live right right in the heart of Gold Coast, Streeterville, and I've certainly had to modify my my lifestyle and i don't like that i don't mm. I, I don't like that so i hope whatever we're going through or what that it ends quickly i'm yeah. not not real happy about it our our um i'm not real happy about the fact that for the most part i mean we're in winter who's eating outside why are the streets still closed? Why are there tents everywhere? Like we're a, a circus. Oh, Michael dies laughing like because he hates that Clark Street is closed. Because the main thing for us is that we can't have valet parking because now we've lost that, that cross street, that ability for the valet parkers to get cars in and out. So we haven't had valets since the pandemic and Clark wow. Street is closed just south of us. And 
I mean, sometimes they'll come in and they'll go, all we need is a tilt-a-whirl and a guy walking around selling cotton candy, and it's like a circus. And the reality is, is I don't know, who's eating outside in a tent? And why are we still doing this? It's it, it, we, it was okay in March of 2020, but it's December 2021. Like, really? Who's eating? Why are we eating? Who wants to eat <laughs> in I, I don't understand it. And all my friends who are part of those restaurant groups are like, oh, but, you know, uh, we, we need, you know, people want to eat outside. Really? I, I don't know anybody who wants to eat in a tent. I, I don't, if I'm at the Iowa State Fair, okay, I'll eat in a tent, but I don't <laughs> want to eat in a tent. It's just not my thing. I want, either I want the full experience or I'll just wait for another day for a different reservation. I'm not eating outside in the freezing cold, wearing my coat with heaters on and wondering for what, why am I here? No. So I think the city needs to snap out of this um, and grow up in that respect and just say, um, it's just not good for safety. It just, it creates an environment that breeds a little bit of the crime that we're seeing right now. Mm. In my opinion, I, we have customers will come in and say, um, we don't go into the loop anymore. We don't go to this institution. We don't go to this museum because we don't feel comfortable. That's not cool. We got, we got, so yes, Chicago's my home, but they don't make it easy for you to love it. Let's just put it that way. Well, you've given a lot to the city over many years, and uh, your restaurants, um, Naha and Brandi and Costali, uh, have certainly, you know, elevated the Chicago dining scene a lot. So I, on behalf of everyone who lives here, I uh, hope you will continue to do that. Um, and uh, also, I, and I'm going to let you go, but I did mean to ask you whether you're still making your Armenian bread, uh, because that's pretty awesome stuff too. So I know I, I had a, a gentleman from Fresno, California, who's Armenian asked me to send, can I order a dozen of your grandmother's pagash? And can you ship it to Fresno? And um, it is a very, you know, if if the church hears this podcast, they'll be like, Carrie's make, Carrie and Craig are making pagash. Oh, you know, I, I need 90 of them or something like that. Um, so for everyone out there, you know, my, <laughs> my grandmother Rose was an exceptional. She was known for her extreme talent in cooking, but all her baking was amazing. And she taught me a number of things before she, she passed away many, many years ago. And she taught me a good majority and she taught a number of people in our family. And I in turn taught Craig and Craig has just mastered it to such a degree that anytime he makes it, we call in Michael's parents, my aunt, my aunt and uncle, George and Pauline, and then bring in a couple of people, you know, from church and they'll try it out because if, you know, like Michael say, I'd rather have every food critic in the world than to have our family or an Armenian in the dining room because it's so, <laughs> you know, you're, you're so nervous. Like when my mother eats in the restaurant, I'll go to the back waiters. In my mother's opinion, what makes, and she, <laughs> she could be the next with kudos to Phil and Nick and everyone at Tribute. My mother could be a killer restaurant critic because she is just, 
she's she has no filter and at 92 you shouldn't have filter but her big concern is always is the bathroom nice is it nice and clean do they not have nice hand towels is there candle does it really smell nice and the coffee better be hot and she doesn't want coffee from lunch at dinner and she doesn't want to keep pouring coffee into her cup and then it gets cold and you know every time my mother orders coffee in a restaurant my sisters and i for all out dining will look at each other like oh please let it be good coffee please let it be, <laughs> please let it be sparrow coffee because anything that isn't sparrow coffee you know never stands a chance so um same with same with the pagash. You know, we can only make it when there's nothing else going on because it it literally takes up every inch of the kitchen. It's a dying craft, and uh, we'll try to keep try to keep that going. Um, we have we can only do it when there's nothing else going around. So, um, so in early Jan in early January when you guys yeah. slow down a little bit, uh, you'll make It'll a bunch happen. of them. I'll come get one. You don't have to ship it anywhere. I'll I'll park my own car somewhere away from the tents. I'll walk over to Brandy and uh, I'll bring you a bottle of wine or something. And well, you probably have enough wine for Michael, honestly. Yeah, but I'll bring something enough. to change. I'll try to come up with some. I'll make you a mix CD or something. I don't know if anyone. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll try to come up with some sort of fa fair exchange. Um, I don't know what could possibly be a fair exchange for that pagash, but I would I would make an attempt. Um, I told you I told you when I gave it to you that time, just put it in the foil, put it in the oven. Oh, and I did. Set your table with some butter and jam. Okay, I have a question for you. Okay. What on Facebook and I, I never I never want to be embarrassed on Facebook. Like like why I don't know why because it's such a volatile platform. But what's the Friday night cage match? I don't understand what that is. What is that? My Friday mean? cage match? Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, you know, every every week for like many years, I've just sort of I know. pitted one thing against another and just sort of have people choose between them. And it's not like a literal, like they have to fight each other, but you know, it's like, it, it's like if you had to see, you know, a movie by, uh, you know, it's Scorsese or Tarantino, which would you choose? Or, you know, I did basil versus cilantro one time, or, you know, I'll do different food ones as well. I, you know, so, you know, versus what? Apricots I, or whatever. I, maybe it's that, that, right side left side of the brain that i look at it and i see cage mask and i immediately go to like w whatever that fight box yeah i don't watch that and i'm like oh and then i just skim past it but my friend not my longtime friend and ex and retired chef mark Fackham, every day on facebook he poses a question he does like you know one a day and you know things like that you know what's what's the best cereal you'll ever have or what's and he's not fishing or anything because he's retired and living a great life but i missed your cilantro versus basil that was I a while ago but I, the one I haven't done, which I was thinking of doing soon, is uh, bacon on the stovetop versus bacon in the oven. Oh. Well, I I have an opinion on that, which is... I, I assumed you would. Uh, people who put bacon in the oven is because they're multitasking. And they are, they're, they're doing so many things that it's one less thing to worry about on the stove. So you lay it down on your strips on your, you know, sheet tray or whatever you're baking in. And then, you know, whether you set a timer or don't set a timer, it's nice and comes out, you know, long and 
keep keeping true to its form. But if you're just making bacon, like for a BLT or something, then you should cook it on the stove because you should be flipping it, turning it, basting it, giving it its own personality. But in a hotel, every breakfast cook has just, you know, 40 sheet trays of trade up bacon because that's the only way you can cook it. And it keeps it nice and long strips. I only discovered the oven thing recently and... I was like, oh, this is easy. Yeah, I could do other stuff during it. But I feel like when I've, I've actually sometimes made it on the, because it's the kind of thing I would do. I've made it on the oven and on the stove at the same time. And I feel like the stove stuff just tastes a little better and is a little crispier. And so. Okay, so you, I'll have to teach you how to make lacquered bacon. Okay. You know, take a slab of bacon and score it. Because once you have bacon like this, you will never have bacon any other way. And you just. Get it, this is know, bonus material here. Okay, great. Bonus material, a, a, a chunk of a slab of bacon, and you score it horizontal, make, make crisscross lines. And then if you have thyme leaves, it'd be great. And at this point, you can put sugar. You can put brown sugar. You can do a combination of a little butter, sugar, a little Tim Burton's maple syrup, a touch of molasses, anything like that, and put it on a nonstick tray like a sill pad or a parchment paper and in a 350 degree oven just bake this chunk of goodness and till it's all bubbly and lacquered and then bring it to the table hot and then you just carve it like a ham mm. and you lose your mind i just we use now how we used to do we, we we use this now in our brussels sprouts we use this in our venison uh, no in the wild shot wild shot wood pigeon in the grand mare that's how the the bacon is in the grand mare but it just elevates it and your family's going to lose their mind because suddenly a side dish becomes a main dish and even to eat it cold and slice it and then you know make a you know i'm a huge michael's like the number one but uh I'm probably number two with being a fan of grilled cheese. And I just recently, I got one of the best Christmas gifts ever recently from my nephew who bought me the Bone Maman jam and honey advent calendar. So every day <laughs> I open it up because I'm a jam honey freak. And I haven't tried any of them. I just see, have this whole calendar of all these jams. But so is there like a jar in every day? There's a jar every day. Wow. It's, it's pretty unbelievable. And um, here's my second tip. Elevate your grilled cheese by adding, um, you know, a smear of an unusual jam like fig or lemon marmalade mm. or some form of fragrance. And then add your bacon, your cheese apple pear caramelized onion you know for me we you have grilled cheese and then you have adult grilled cheese so there's my little tip for the day wow that sounds great <laughs> all right I'm, i am so hungry right now that's unbelievable i bet you are but thanks for I'll be, having I'll be over me. In, i'll be over in 20 minutes <laughs> okay well you know there is a shortage of, of there's a shortage of capriol farm goat cheese right now which is my go-to um cheese for grilled cheese is uh juliana you do goat cheese for grilled cheese juliana it's the age it's 
rubbed in herbs of Provence and calendula, which is marigold, and it's aged. So you slice it and oh, it melts. It's amazing. No, I, Michael will probably wow. take a chunk of Velveeta and slam it between two pieces of Wonder Bread and put it in his toaster oven <laughs> and claim it to be the greatest thing since, you know, Alain Ducasse. But I, I cook my bacon and then I cook the eggs and the bacon and then I take the bread and, you know, it's so simple pleasures. That's about as extensive as I cook at my house, unless I have <laughs> friends over. But that's the biggest thing. That but Merry great. Christmas. Happy holidays. Thanks, you too. I hope to see you Thank soon. Thank you, Chef. I, it was wonderful talking to you. I, absolutely. We'll have to come in. I think we'll bring the whole family. And uh, my, my, young, my younger daughter's on a total French kick, and I think that she would just totally... Totally love Brandy. Not that she wouldn't anyway. I want to tell you, since you said about your family, I'll t my last thing I'll tell you is that you were talking about, you know, guests, guest history, things like that. And the coolest thing happened is that friends of Michael's from childhood, from growing up and school, and then they went to college together and everything at U University of Illinois. And um, it was, a, it's, it was just on Saturday night and they were a 12 or a 13 top and it was a family dinner, like the grandkids and the parents and the kids and, you know, whatever. And there was a, even a baby and, um, the mother asked Michael for a bag, a to-go bag. And she took every single person's cell phone and put it in the bag and said, okay, we're having a family dinner and nice. Michael came in and said, he's never seen it before. And that you could hear the sounds of, the, of all of them laughing and talking and everything like that. And it was fun to, we love having kids in the restaurant. Um, we had some kids the other day that were like, um, we ate Joe Robichon potatoes when we, were, <laughs> when we were in Paris. And so we know what Joe Robichon potatoes are. And I thought that was like the greatest thing I'd ever heard until they ordered oysters and foie gras and the parents had caviar. And, the, and you know, if you, I have a friend that's just started a, um, a diverse ethnic sustainable baby food company, ba making, making unbelievable baby food. Of, wow all different varieties but Western foie gras no like pad thai baby food and things mm -hmm. like that and the premise is from all the doctors and everything that she's consulting global is called is introduce your children to everything that they become allergic to at a very young age and then their body adapts to it so that they build up a resistance because Kids in Central America, South America, Africa, they don't have nut allergies. They don't have grain allergies, dairy allergies, because they started at a very young age to introduce this into their life. So I think it's fun when um, young children come in and they experience that they're, they've opened their eyes. They're not they don't have their parents saying, oh, you're not going to like an oyster or you have to be an adult to try it or you're not going to like, you know, um, lacquered bacon because it's different. It's different. And so as soon as you start putting in that preconceived notion, kids turn off because they react to how you are. So I love that 
Michael came in and said, it's so cool. She took the cell phones away from everyone and is forcing everyone to enjoy people's, their, you know, the family company. So we'd love to have, see the Carroll family. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll take their cell phones away too. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much. And, uh, and we'll see and taste your food soon. Thank right. you. That's a wrap on episode 11 of Carol Pop. Thanks to Carrie Nabedian for sharing her passion, insights, and stories, and welcoming us into her culinary family. You can make online reservations at Brandee, which is spelled B-R-I-N-D-I-L-L-E, as well as Castali in the Gwen Hotel. And remember, they're not charging more on New Year's Eve or Valentine's Day. If you're not in Chicago, you should come and try her cooking anyway. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Luke Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who's got a recipe for making this sound just right. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Carroll, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.